Hello, and welcome to Polylog, a weekly dialogue on the substance and style of the Sunday morning political shows, where we take a critical look at the policymaker, the politician, and the journalist, because each is critical and each demands criticism. I'm Naomi Soto, your co-host and health policy professional based in California. And I'm Brendan Steidel, your other co-host and communications specialist in government, technology, and healthcare. Our goal for Polylog is to look at all sides of the Sunday morning talk shows. We discuss guest performances, the style and quality of questions by the hosts, and the overall usefulness of roundtable discussions. Polylog is our attempt to find, praise, and demand constructive political dialogue. Today is Sunday, May 16th, 2021. And we are going to be talking about quite a host of issues today several topics yes it's it's almost like we got the mask mandate that changed and, and now it's like every, more news and everyone's it's like people say oh the world is kind of getting closer to being back to normal sort of or we think it might be and the sunday shows sort of are doing that too covering lots of different issues absolutely so let's get to it brendan what shows did you look at today so i took a look at three shows. I looked at Fox News Sunday, I looked at State of the Union, and I looked at Meet the Press. And what's the rating for each show? So I would say it's so interesting. I feel like Meet the Press did a pretty good job, particularly it excelled in its interview related to the CDC guidance changes. So I think I want to give Meet the Press a four on that count. I think I also want to give Fox News Sunday a four. They're, they're almost a five, but I think I'm going to give them a four. Wow, that's pretty good. Yeah, it's so funny. I feel like my estimation of Fox News Sunday increased as I spent more time looking over the shows and my notes and the clips. And so, yeah, I think overall it was a pretty good episode. And then when it came to State of the Union, it was just a handful of interviews Nothing really stood out. I don't think they were the best bookings ever. There wasn't a concerted effort to really explain or go deep into any single issue. So I think I'll give that a three. Still pretty decent ratings. Yes. How about yourself? Not so. I mean, I don't know. Face the Nation was really well done. I was going to get it a four, but as we're talking, I think I'm going to give it a five. Wow. Even though I have a questionable that's not really quite that questionable. That's from Face the Nation, but... A lot of really important interviews and a lot of just explaining a dense week. So I think just well done there. But in my hearts of hearts, I want to give a four, but I know it's probably a five. All right. Just for the record, Uh my anti-five stance. And I think I was going to give this week a three. And the more I think about it, I'm going to give it a two. Whoa. Because as I realized how well Face the Nation did... It made me realize just how much there wasn't much there for this week. Very interesting. So those are my scores. But let's jump to quality questionable, Brendan. I have a very quick questionable moment. Okay, go ahead. Get to it. So there has been someone who has been quite important the last year in polylog world and it's mercedes our new <laughs> baby nope someone even more wow important. we said our name i don't know if we ever said our name on the show her name's mercedes she's great <laughs> <laughs> besides mercedes <laughs> <laughs> the other person that's been important to the show is dr scott gottlieb and he was not on face the nation today what where he- was he I don't know. I, mean, I demand I hope he to took know. A vacation. I He's did. in Connecticut. 
He's always in Connecticut. <laughs> he never leaves. Connecticut is a very small state. But he was not on. And, you know, I was a little upset that they didn't make it a big deal. It was yeah. a big deal to me. Take a listen to all these voices and all, well, not all these voices, all these names and no Gottlieb. We'll talk exclusively with Israel's Prime Minister, Benjamin Netanyahu. Then, celebration and confusion over the CDC's surprise about face for vaccinated people on mask wearing. The rule is very simple. Get vaccinated or wear a mask until you do. It's a milestone in the 14-month-long pandemic, but it's also cause for head-scratching when it comes to enforcing and following the new guidance. We'll check in with Dr. Anthony Fauci. Plus, a massive fuel pipeline is back in service after a crippling cyber attack that triggered a gas shortage in the southeast. What can be done to curb these kinds of attacks? We'll talk with the chairman of the House Intelligence Committee, Congressman Adam Schiff, and Chris Krebs, the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. We'll also hear from Senators Kirsten Gillibrand and Joni Ernst, a bipartisan duo closing in on a law that will reform the way the military handles sexual assault cases. It's all just ahead on Face the Nation. It's not all just ahead. Where's Scott Gottlieb, damn it? I don't want to hear from Fauci, Dr. Fauci. Give me Dr. Gottlieb. (laughs) Yeah. Gottlieb's been way more right throughout this than Fauci. I just got to say. So, yeah, as John Dickerson said, we've been in this pandemic 14 months. I'm pretty sure that Dr. Gottlieb was on before it was was on face the nation before we were in kind of full pandemic yes crisis mode so he's probably been on literally every week he has been on every week for yeah. like 15 pushing 15 months yes so yes maybe he should get a break but no keep him on he keep deserves on. A, a retainer and if anything how about a thank you for like giving us your sunday morning for the last year listen Five years from now, Gottlieb should still be on this show <laughs> talking about something because he does a great job. But also, he should get credit. He should get to do a victory lap because he was the first guest last week on Face the Nation. He was like number one. And I was like, wow, this is a big deal. He's number one. And he predicted, he said, we need to take the masks off indoors. And bam, it happened days later. And as the reporting shows, even the White House, Biden himself didn't know about the announcement on Thursday until Thursday, until well, that morning. Well, he should morning. have been watching Vaccination with Dr. Scott Gottlieb. Clearly, yeah. he would have known. Yeah. I, I just want to say one final thing about this. I know I'm dragging this on. Yeah, this but is listen, a very brief And this quote, is your but... piece. I was trying to think about it, and I was like, you know, maybe it's fitting that Scott Gottlieb is gone now, now that we've gotten well, we the CDC know he's gone. Note. He was just not on today. I'm saying, yes. But it's he's kind of like Mary Poppins. Now, you don't know this, Naomi, because you fell asleep when I tried to show you Mary Poppins. But at the <laughs> wow, end... Wow, all these truth bombs on today's show. At the end of Mary Poppins, which is a fantastic movie. I'm the child of immigrants. There's a lot of American classics I haven't seen, she, for the record. She is a magical, amazing lady, okay? Nanny to these children. Everyone knows Mary Poppins. I don't know where magical. we're going. Okay. At the end of Mary Poppins, when everything seems to have been fixed in the lives of this family... They look and she's gone. And it's because the wind has changed. And she always said when the wind changes, she's going to leave. Really, and that's Scott Gottlieb. Really the winds of the masks and the mandates and the pandemic have changed. And he's he's gone on his way. He's lifted up 
on his umbrella. I love that this new very places. thorough Mary Poppins explainer is necessary for literally just me. <laughs> <laughs> but it was very helpful. And I agree. Gottlieb was pretty much Mary Poppins. Yeah, there he goes. <laughs> Brendan, what is, do you, you also have a questionable note? Yes, I have, my real thing is a questionable, but I do have a quality that just kind of like anchors us in okay. the quality world. Yeah. I mean, this is like quite the quality questionable, but anyway, yes. keep going. So my questionable is about what's going on in Israel right now. I was hugely disappointed by a number of the shows that I covered in their failure to explain to the audience what the hell is is causing this flare up. Why is this happening? There were very few discussions of that. There were mentions of what is happening this minute but not why we are talking about it now when we weren't talking about it last week. And that is just a, a huge miss. So here's an example of that. This is from the beginning of Meet the Press and the report from Richard Engel, who generally I have a lot of respect for, but this whole report, mm, take a listen. But we're going to begin with the fighting between Israel and Hamas one day after the Israelis targeted and demolished a building in Gaza housing international news organizations. Our chief foreign correspondent, Richard Engel, is in Tel Aviv for us. And Richard, on Friday, you and I talked about this, and you had said Hamas and, and the Israeli government were looking for an exit ramp. Why can't they find it? Well, I think still that both sides do seem to want to find a way that they can declare victory. Um, they both have a lot of interest in doing that. Israel so far hasn't invaded the Gaza Strip, and it could have done that. So it is holding off, and instead it is just launching airstrikes, causing a lot of damage inside Gaza it is, as it is degrading the Hamas military infrastructure and destroying a lot of other buildings. Uh, if Israel were to roll in with its tanks, it would face intense uh, ground assaults. And then he goes on and on. But no description of why this is happening. State of the Union also didn't do a very good job of explaining to the audience what is going on here, why it's happening. And there was an interview with former Democratic Representative Jane Harman, who last served as ranking member of the Intelligence Committee in the House several years ago, now works for a nonprofit, but again, not a lot of detail there. And then Fox News Sunday was the show that actually did the best job of this. They didn't go into the details of why in their special report, but their little special report at the top of the episode, I felt provided a more rounded look at the actual carnage that has occurred and the people who are suffering, the actual people, instead of just the, the leaders and their choices. And then in the panel... Chris Wallace actually had a really intelligent and meaningful discussion with a number of panelists on why this is happening. So I kind of give Fox News Sunday uh, a big thumbs up here. The Israel Defense Forces also responded today to criticism for destroying a media building on Saturday in Gaza City. A spokesperson for the military said these buildings will not be a bulwark for Hamas, but provided no evidence the group was operating out of the location. The Israeli military is shelling the Gaza Strip amid incoming rocket fire, the damage done by this artillery seen throughout Gaza. Early this morning, a young child in Gaza City was pulled alive from the rubble of a collapsed building. Video from the scene shows how Gazans have lived the past week, trying to stay alive with very few places to hide. 
The Palestinian death toll in Gaza soared to more than 180 people. So far, 10 Israelis are dead, including one soldier, and dozens more injured. While Israel has killed many military leaders, at least 80 civilian women and children have died as well. And that was Trey Yinkst, Fox News correspondent. And here's just a little bit from that panel. One, there were some precipitating events at the beginning of this week, the planned eviction of some Palestinian families from East Jerusalem, and that led to some open fighting uh, on the Temple Mount, the Al-Aqsa Mosque. But why do you think it is that we're now seeing the worst violence between Israel and the Palestinians that we've seen in at least seven years? Chris, I think the ground has shifted in that Israeli-Palestinian dynamic over the last few years. President Trump and Prime Minister Netanyahu of Israel uh, basically created alliances. They negotiated the so-called Abraham Accords. They created alliances through the Middle East uh, with the focus on defeating Iran, stopping Iran's nuclear ambitions. Uh, but as a consequence, decades of negotiations focused on a two-state solution, which has been U.S. policy, you know, across party lines forever. That effort, that two-state solution uh, paradigm was abandoned. And I think consequently, we're now in a dynamic where the Palestinians very much feel isolated, voiceless. I think that you have seen the Palestinian Authority, the Fatah, undermined in that dynamic, while Hamas, the most radical and extreme faction uh, in the Palestinian uh, segment, now is elevated right. and they feel like they are free to fight. So this is just one explanation from Juan Williams, who leans towards the Democratic progressive side. So you see him there kind of pointing the finger a little bit at the Trump administration. Of course, there are way more detailed reasons behind why things are happening here. And I read an excellent explainer that I will highly recommend uh, listeners peruse. And that's a piece by Zach Bocamp in Vox that talks about the Gaza doom loop, basically the cycle of violence that is taking place in Israel between Israel, the Palestinians, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas. It's a very complex situation, and very few of these Sunday shows seem to lift a finger in trying to explain to the audience all of the forces at work, and also what exactly the Biden administration could do, can do, what the U.S can do to kind of insert itself to ease tensions. Well, I have a lot to say about some of the coverage that I saw on this issue, uh, and I'll get to it when we talk about our moment in politics. But Brendan, you also have a quality moment, no? Yes, this is just a very small clip, but it's one I think you will appreciate, Naomi, and something we have talked about on Polylog. This is from Meet the Press. This is Representative Adam Kinzinger, a Republican, speaking to Chuck Todd. And first, you will hear Chuck Todd's question and listen to what Representative Kinzinger says. And Representative Kinzinger is from the state of Illinois. What do you, um, the, the biggest problem, it was interesting to hear Congressman Crenshaw, um, because he said, hey, my constituents are asking about X. Well, one of the issues in our gerrymandered society, both of, of, of congressional districts, but also in the way siloed media is you have a you have a, a, a sort of a, an information wing on the right that seems to struggle with reality themselves and feeds this, some of this nonsense to many of your constituents. This seems to be the broken piece here. What do you think can be done about it? 
You know, I think a lot of it is just an overload of information for people. And so instead of kind of working through that information, a lot of people have just chosen, you know, what venue or what people, what personalities they trust and put all their faith in it. I think similar to Donald Trump. I think people have to take responsibility for their own ability to work through misinformation, to remember what the Constitution is about, to be okay with losing power for a little bit and let that actually reaffirm that you have to go out and win a next generation of conservatives. So there's a lot there, but the piece, Naomi, you probably noticed that I was highlighting here that I thought was a quality thing that was said is where Representative Kinzinger says, I think people have to take responsibility for their own ability to work through misinformation. Basically, take responsibility for the media that they are consuming. I mean, listen, I will bring up media literacy at my very first post-COVID dinner party, guaranteed. And if Kinzinger wants to talk about it too, I am all for it. Well said. Naomi, let's move on to, do you want to talk about politics or do you want to talk about journalism? So I will start us off with my something about politics. I wanted to look at specifically the interview that John Dickerson had with Israeli Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Now, aside from your frustration, Brendan, about whether or not the show's explained it very well, they kind of explain the history, explain what Trump could do, what like... Well, yeah, I think they didn't do that, yeah. Or, or didn't do, or what they should be doing. I mean, and those are all kind of interesting, noteworthy things to discuss and examine the journalistic perspective of that. This interview got me thinking about what are my expectations as a viewer when there is an international leader on the Sunday shows. Mm. And it got me thinking, I don't really have any. And that's kind of not okay. And I think so many times I'm like, is there anything noteworthy? And I kind of just like, to be honest, I kind of lazily just listen along and I rarely feel like there was something that profoundly educated me or illuminated me with some new angle or whatever. And I'm thinking like, I know we've seen an interview with the Prime Minister of France, Emmanuel Macron. We've also seen the Canadian Prime Minister, Trudeau, at least I'll meet the press, if not others. Boris Johnson was recently Boris on. Boris Johnson was interviewed. I think it was Face the Nation. Yeah. And so we don't see it all the time, but it happens. It happens semi-regularly. And yeah, I, I kind of realized like I rarely have some lasting impression from the interview. And I usually assume that's because I don't know the politics or the issues that they're discussing very closely. And so like, oh, I don't really know what they're talking about. So I'm just like barely kind of like pulling pulling at strings trying to understand what they're saying or what they're not saying. But this interview was different. And it was because one, Netanyahu has an extremely aggressive sharp personality his his country is literally in crisis and john dickerson's an excellent interview with his very savvy kind of smooth approach to those types of personalities so it really was quite interesting and so i wanted to share some a couple moments with you brendan i don't have i have some strong feelings but i'm kind of curious as to what your reactions are to it mainly because it got me thinking I need to have better expectations as to what I should be wanting in an interview with an international leader. All right, let's get to it. So the first couple of clips that I wanted to share are Prime Minister Netanyahu's defense of 
the military action that Israel has taken against Hamas, specifically, supposedly, their very precise missiles that have been constant. We're doing everything we can to hit the terrorists themselves, their rockets, their rocket caches and their arms, uh, but we're not going to uh, just let them get away with it. Neither would you. I mean, <laughs> you just imagine what would have happened if uh, you had uh, 2,900 uh, rockets fired on Washington and New York and others. I think you, you would understand our position. I think you do, actually. The precision of that targeting has uh, been up for question. There's been a lot of focus on the bombing on Saturday in Gaza of a building that housed the Associated Press and Al Jazeera, the Committee to Protect Journalists, demanded detailed and documented justification. This morning, there's a Jerusalem Post story that says the Americans were shown a smoking gun, uh, that proof that Hamas was in that building. What is that proof? Um, and did you show it to the Americans? Well, we share with our American friends all that in intelligence. And here's the intelligence we had. It's about Palestinian terrorist, uh, uh, an intelligence office for the Palestinian terrorist organization housed in that building that plots and organizes the terror attacks against Israeli civilians. So it's a perfectly legitimate target. Uh, and I can tell you that we took every precaution to make sure that there were no uh, civilian injuries, in fact, no deaths, no injuries whatsoever. Uh, well, I can't say injuries. I don't know if somebody received a, a fragment of a, of a stone. I don't know that. But no people were killed. Now imagine, ask yourself, how is that possible? You see these high-rise towers that are used by Hamas over and over again. They collapse and no one is killed. Why does that happen? Because we, unlike Hamas, take special precautions to tell people, leave the building, leave the premises. We make sure that everyone is gone before we bring down those terrorist facilities. So in this first clip, you hear Netanyahu really defend the military response. There's been a lot of blowback specifically on one, the disproportionate response from Israel to Hamas. And then now, just this weekend, there was a leveling of a journalistic, a building full of journalistic institutions, including Al Jazeera and the AP. And in this first clip, you hear Netanyahu really make it like a sound military decision. In this next clip, you hear him kind of, there's a level of pride you don't hear in military leaders. But you spoke with President uh, Biden yesterday. It's inconceivable you would have talked to him and not shared proof of Hamas in those buildings that housed the journalists. Did you share that with him? Well, we pass it through the uh, intelligence services to our people, to uh, those people. Uh, why do you think we brought down that building? The interesting thing is, I would say, that, you know, all the journalists, one of the, uh, I think, AP journalists said, we were lucky to get out. Yeah. No, you weren't lucky to get out. It wasn't luck. It's because we took special pains to call people in those buildings to make sure that the premises were vacated. Mm -hmm. And that's why we brought down that building. And look, you have your own experiences, I think, in, in Mosul, in Fallujah, in Afghanistan. Uh, I, I think you can appreciate the efforts we go through in dense urban fighting when terrorists are... Uh, uh, targeting civilians who are hiding behind civilians, how difficult that is. We do our best to avoid civilian casualties, and we did that yesterday with that building as well. He definitely sounds like the type of character who will explain to you your feelings and why they are wrong. And you know, no, you, you're not lucky. Let me tell you, you're not lucky. It's me who made sure that you were lucky. That's not luck. Thank you very much. 
Yeah, like this. I journalist, accept your your welcome. Yeah, this you should be thanking me. Is probably for destroying your office. Quite stunned and devastated at the leveling of his place of work, which is like an. I mean, obviously, we care about journalism on this show. It it's fascinating to me here. One, like the ego that Net- Netanyahu comes to the show with, and just zero apology. And I don't know. It's like he doesn't care if international leaders are he's not trying to convince anybody like this is like i'm trying to understand why he went on the show right like why he agreed to this interview because it's an important get by face the nation right that they got this interview and i'm not really clear what the prime minister was hoping to accomplish because he just comes off i I mean just i'm assuming it's to be strong and assertive which he's successful in doing but there's zero, like, this is a hard situation. This is, like, not what we want. There's, there's zero, like, we would like to get to the ceasefire within 36 hours. There's, like, no bringing down of the hostility or the aggression in, or even describing the, the appetite to do that in this whole interview. And so I, I kind of don't even understand then why he went on the show. Well, I think fundamentally Israel relies upon U.S. support, and he's trying to cement that support, and he's trying, and I think probably he and others in his administration assume that, look, a lot of people are concerned about civilian deaths, and so if we can reassure people that this is something we are very careful about, then, and then say we are very aggressive with Hamas because they are terrorists and in American lexicon since 2001 and even before that like terrorists are bad and we should pursue them with no holds barred I think that's probably the playbook he is he is working from which I guess I don't know if he's successful in that and I think John Dickerson does do a good job in bringing very specific examples of that criticism to frame the conversation with Netanyahu about people aren't buying into your claims of precise defense. The arguments about how careful Israel have been are familiar ones to your critics. And in this case, with 181 Palestinians dead, 52 of them children, there's significant criticism. Amnesty International has asked the criminal International Criminal Court to look into a refugee camp attack. The UN is meeting today. Foreign ministers of the EU are meeting. And, and the, the response has been like this one from the foreign minister of Ireland. Israel has international legal obligation to protect children in conflict and are not doing so. That's just a false. I mean, the reason we have these casualties is because Hamas is criminally attacking us from uh, civilian neighborhoods, from schools, from homes, from office buildings. That's what they're doing. But, uh, and we're taking action, trying to target them with as great precision as we can. Unfortunately, there are uh, occasionally civilian casualties, which we regret. But here's what happens. When the international community attacks Israel, they're actually encouraging Hamas to continue these attacks because Hamas says, it's great. We're both killing Israeli civilians. The question, Mr. Prime Minister, is uh, U.S. Secretary of State Tony Blinken said that Israel has an extra burden, that Israel, because of its 
strength and power and dominance has an extra burden on these question of cap casualties. The question is whether Israel is meeting its extra burden uh, in, in responding to these rocket attacks from Hamas. Certainly are. And I can tell you that uh, there have been many studies by serious military analysts who have compared Israel's actions with that of other Western armies in uh, similar situations fighting uh, radical Islamists, uh, whether it's in uh, Iraq or in uh, Afghanistan or elsewhere. And you know how prolonged those conflicts are, how many casualties are caused. Uh, so I, I think there is a uh, there has to be a measure of fairness. Uh, there has to be a measure of uh, of reasonableness in projecting mm -hmm. this kind of criticism against the Israeli army that is second to none mm -hmm. in seeking to minimize civilian casualties while protecting our own civilians. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, if Hamas would simply move these rockets out of the civilian areas, if they move their command posts out of these uh, homes and offices, uh, then there, there wouldn't be any problem. Let you me know ask you, Mr. Prime Minister. But the fact is, they're sending thousands of rockets yeah. on our cities with a specific purpose of murdering our civilians from these places. Let me ask you, Mr. What would you do? Let me ask if it Mr. happened to Washington and to New York? You know, Mr. you know Prime damn Minister, well what you do. Let me ask you, you a, do at the very a broader least what question. Let me ask you a broader question that was articulated by Senator Bernie Sanders, which is distinct from the clashes over the last week. Again, he's explaining to us what we would do and what our feelings are. That definitely stands out in that answer. Yeah, so here... I thought John Dickerson asked a good question, but let the whole moment get away from him and that he wasn't able to rein it back in or, I mean, Netanyahu just kind of took over there. So overall, I mean, <laughs> I have a lot more opinions and thoughts about this interview. I just, I think it's very important that Face the Nation was able to book this interview. And I think it's important that news organizations have an objective. Like, I don't want to say, like, have an angle. I don't know. I just feel like I hope CBS News tries to hear from other important Palestinian leaders this week or tries to have an explainer. Right. Like, yeah. this is one piece of a very complicated story, and I think it's an important voice to hear because Netanyahu is literally commanding this, this military response. But... It's not the only thing, right? And so I'm very curious as to how CBS and, and other news organizations, but like how this fits into the bigger media ecosystem of talking about this story, because I feel like they've been, often what I've been seeing, I've been like, it's almost like, like these tiny pieces and we need, yeah. it's like a, somebody's working on a puzzle and they're like tiny microscopic pieces, it seems like, and we need someone's just like, put it together with right. like really big pieces. Right. And that's what I felt was missing when I was talking about, you know, what caused this and what are the who are the players and why is it happening? You know, all that is important to understand how we move to a solution and what those critical questions should be. Like one thing I'm noticing here is certainly John Dickerson looks like at least in the questions you are highlighting, he's really questioning decisions related to military tactics and targeting or not targeting civilians or being careful about not targeting civilians, that sort of thing. But were there questions about de-escalation? 
right? Because the Anthony Blinken quote from our Secretary of State says Israel has an extra burden because, yes, it is. It truly is the strongest power in this current conflict. And it's not just a special burden to be careful about casualties, but it's a special burden to try to lead towards some sort of resolution to stop this conflict. There, Were there questions about that? There was. There, It was actually the first question. And... Netanyahu said, we hope to get to it, but it's not going to be anytime soon, essentially. Mm -hmm. So something to keep in mind, the news that you're seeing about the crisis with the Palestinians and Israel, like not there's not going to be one news story that's going to answer everything. I think that's important to kind of just like acknowledge and keep in mind. But if there's only telling one angle of the story, if they're not if they're only talking about like civilian deaths and not giving you any history or context to understand why this is even happening. Right. If at no point are we not talking about money and aid, like that seems ridiculous too. Like we've been looking at this story now for like a week and we're due for some other angles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, these reports that a number of these shows started their episodes with where it's like, we're going to go to our reporter on the ground and they're going to tell us the latest. It's like, well, okay. But this isn't a morning news show that we see every morning. This is a, a serious discussion about policy and politics and the world that only happens once a week. So sure, you can give us the context of what happened last night. But what's more important is for us to have the context of why it's happening this year versus, right. and you know, as we heard from Chris Wallace, 2014, when there was less violence. Like, what is different about now? Yeah, and I think... I have less issue with kind of like the report from the ground, I think, than you do, Brendan. But what I don't like it being is a crutch where they're like, and this is explains everything. Right. Goodbye. They treat it as that's all that's needed. Exactly. Oftentimes. Okay. Brendan, what's your something in politics that you want to discuss today? Oh, well, this will be a quick one because it's just something that I think we should all recognize has kind of happened on the Sunday shows during the Trump administration. There were lots of people speaking for Donald Trump and his administration. In fact, I think there were only a handful of times when it was Donald Trump himself who was the only voice speaking for the administration. We heard all sorts of advisors and leaders, administration officials, secretaries of various cabinet departments, ambassadors. We heard lots of voices representing the Trump administration. And of course, yes, we talked a lot about Trump's tweets and this and that. And we heard quotes from Trump at various rallies that would punctuate the Sunday shows. But Donald Trump wasn't just one man. He was an administration. Now he is one man. And he seems to have one priority. And that is to relitigate the election to say that he didn't lose and that things were stolen falsely to say this again and again and again. And there has just been such a change in the way the media and the way the Sunday shows cover and talk about Donald Trump. And that is what I want to talk about here. It is just a few clips of various voices, including those of the hosts, talking about Donald Trump himself. Because from all these clips, my conclusion is that Trump's reputation is in the toilet at these Sunday shows. How can Republicans think he has a valid political future and is not completely toxic when this is how he is being talked about on the Sunday shows on all these different networks? Take a listen. The first clip you'll hear is 
from Meet the Press. This is from a conversation with Republican Representative Dan Crenshaw from the state of Texas. Did you see the rantings of him yesterday? And to the point where a Republican official in Maricopa County called the former president unhinged. You know, I understand you guys want to put this behind Chuck, you, but Chuck, he is the leader but, of your party and he doesn't stop talking about this nonsense. Chuck, the only Later on the panel of Meet the Press, we hear from someone named Brendan Buck, who is a Republican strategist. Um, you know, we, we have sort of uh, nibbled at the edges of, of how to get around Donald Trump for, for so long. And I don't think this is really the solution. Um, I, I firmly believe we, we need to have a different approach if we are going to get past him. We've been trying for so long this approach of just hoping that he goes away, hoping that if we look the other way that, um, yeah. you know, his craziness won't in- infect the party. But look at what happened. We lost the House. We lost the Senate. We lost the White House. There, he is a political disaster. And I think we need to wake up to that fact and realize um, that the, the process isn't going to help us. We, we need we need to go in a different direction. Political disaster. Here is Representative Liz Cheney on Fox News Sunday talking about Trump. Former President Trump continues to be a real danger. Uh, what he's doing and what he's saying, his claims, his, his refusal, refusal to accept decisions uh, by the courts, uh, his claims continued as recently as yesterday that somehow this election was stolen. You know, what he's doing is he's, he's causing people uh, to believe that they can't count on our electoral process to uh, actually convey the will of the people. You know, we have to be a nation of laws. Uh, if, if you continue to reject, if you reject the rulings of the courts, if you work against the rulings of our courts, then you really are at war with the Constitution. And, and he is a continuing uh, danger to our system. Those millions of people that you mentioned uh, who supported the president have been misled. They've been betrayed. At war with the Constitution, Cheney says. And here is a Republican commentator on the panel of Fox News Sunday talking about what's going on with the Republicans in Congress. This is Steve Hayes, editor of The Dispatch and Fox News contributor. You can understand on the one hand why these House members wouldn't want Liz Cheney there because she's not talking only about Joe Biden. And, you know, that's the argument they've made. The problem with that is that neither are they. You look at the things that they've been saying and doing in the time since they this came up again. They're the ones elevating Donald Trump and putting him front and center again. You had Elise Stefanik give interviews to to podcasts in which she talked, you know, sort of raised again these election conspiracies and, and got behind Donald Trump on those. You had Kevin McCarthy go on Sean Hannity the other night and talk about how virile Donald Trump is because he doesn't require a lot of sleep. You had the NRSC, the National Republican Senatorial Committee, sending out 112 emails mentioning Donald Trump since April 24th. They're not trying to get beyond Donald Trump. They're putting him front and center. And I think the arguments that they're making suggesting they want to just move on and look forward are disingenuous. So the point of this is that if you are tuning in to these Sunday shows, you are basically not hearing one positive thing about Donald Trump. Not one thing. Even the most pro-Trump voice that I heard on the three shows that I looked at today, Representative Dan Crenshaw, his main point was, look, Donald Trump is one of many leaders in the party. He's a former president and his voice is going to be heard, but there are lots of voices minimizing the idea that Donald Trump is leading everything. Well, this is in alignment with what we've heard in earlier weeks 
from I believe it was Jake Tapper and I think Chuck Todd did something too about like the big lie by Republicans what are they going to believe what this is a turning point right how much are they going to stick by this president what does this mean for the party particularly the the ousting of Liz Cheney that we saw formally happen this last week exactly and so I think it's perfectly in line with following the objective of mainstream media to say you're still continuing on this path what does this say about you like to republicans to republicans you're still on this path of accepting donald trump right and rejecting the reality of what happened yeah i mean good job i kind of wish they had done this two years ago right right (laughs) but i guess it's happening now but i just wanted to put like a little bookmark in this moment to say like if there was any vestige of giving Trump the benefit of the doubt on these Sunday shows, it is gone now. It has been completely eliminated. And we rarely even see a voice booked that is pro-Trump, even on Fox News Sunday. Yes, I mean, it's just tricky because how much of it is... The shows are interested in what the parties are doing, right? And so they are booking Republicans who will be able to give some insight as to where the party should or could go, incredibly go. And so the mega Trump fans don't have really much to say on that. Yeah, yeah. I think that's that's a good point. And also that the way these shows are framing the discussion of Trump is almost always negative. Exactly. So we will see where the Republicans go and what they think Donald Trump's political future can be in a world where... He's lost every positive story on the Sunday shows or any, as I said, benefit of the doubt. Naomi, what do you want to say about journalism today? So I wanted to look at how the shows did in talking about the colonial pipeline cyber attack. I didn't follow this story too, too much during the week. Interestingly. We have visitors in town, so it's made it a little bit hard. But too, I also... (laughs) I work from home and like never drive my car anymore. So like all the ways like some people were impacted by this story were just like really distant to me. And so it was interesting looking at this story as just like a fresh observer. And it was interesting what I noticed. So first, another well done booking from the Face the Nation team. John Dickerson interviewed the former director of the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, Chris Krebs. And he came on and gave some kind of just like 101, like what this attack says about the state of our infrastructure and our security. And I think gave, was the expert. He was the expert on the show that helped us understand this. Take a listen to this great intro and level setting. I want to start with the Colonial Pipeline. It was not intended to undermine American infrastructure, but it suggested some vulnerabilities. What did we learn? Good morning, John. First, I think that if there was any remaining question as to whether cybercrime and ransomware in particular was a national security threat, I I think that question resolved itself over the last week. I think one of the the key things I took away from the last week is that business executives have to stop looking at cybersecurity as a technical risk issue, and it truly is a business risk. I mean, we're talking resilience of the national economy, and we've got to do a better job in terms of closing out vulnerabilities and making our systems and our operations uh, more resilient. That's one way to put it. It that question resolved itself because we know we're doomed. Okay, <laughs> all right. 
I guess great, that's great, one great, way great, to put great, it. Great. <laughs> or as uh, my nephew really loves Brooklyn Nine-Nine. Cool, 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 <laughs> cool. <laughs> he said that just way too casually, Krebs. <laughs> but I thought it was really well done to say, like, this is not about, like, cybersecurity affects everything, right? Including our <laughs> actual economy. And it's important that companies realize that it's not, like... T- Cybersecurity doesn't, it's not siloed and just making sure your technical capabilities are resilient, but that your whole business model will not be affected. Because it will. Yes, exactly. There was an executive order that was signed by President Biden that increased the requirements for IT and technology providers to the government. So the idea being that if you are going to provide services to the federal government, you need to have better beefed up cybersecurity and the idea being the federal government is such a huge purchaser of this that it's going to then lead to increased protection like in the industry as well right that it's like if you're going to provide great care for one client it's going to trickle down so the other ones yeah it's this is basically the the same model that makes it so the because the government provides so much health care through medicare to right. health care providers exactly. what the government says is required for medicare often trickles down to everything that a hospital or health system does because you literally will not be able to get medicare patients which is such a huge percentage of patients because <laughs> exactly. it's every one over 65 yeah, so it affects the, the entire system exactly yeah but it was interesting hearing on this week there was a panel without chris christie and rahm emanuel thank you martha raditz it included journalists that were talking about the executive order and what it was aiming to accomplish and what it struggles to do this first clip you're going to hear pierre thomas and then you're going to hear cecilia vega both from cbs news can more be done here can more be done there has to be able to do or or do these companies weigh the risk versus the cost of doing more to stop these attacks i think the thing that struck me most in my conversations were law enforcement people telling me pierre at the end of the day these companies control how they protect their computers we can't make them do anything and in some cases we can't even make them tell us when they've been hit with a ransomware attack. So they know that this is going to be a collective effort by the government and private companies to improve security, and they've been warning them for years to take care of this issue. It has not happened. The one thing that the government said that you can expect is that they will go after some of these organizations in terms of their structure and also try to do away with the way that they can get their money. I think Pierre, what Pierre is saying is is exactly right. What this really exposed this week for all of Washington, including this White House, was how um, limited government is and what they can do with these private companies when it comes to forcing them to beef up their cybersecurity efforts. Because reportedly, Colonial, it took four days for them to even have substantive conversations with authorities. And when you talk to folks in the White House and in the administration privately, they were very frustrated by that. So you saw the reaction. You asked, what can the president do? He's trying. They signed this. He signed this very lengthy executive order. But, you know, they the, the reality is the administration, the government is limited in scope and how much they can force these companies to beef up these networks. So they're really sort of at, at the it's at the whim of these companies to do more. So a bit of skepticism from the journalist. But I thought it was interesting to kind of note, like, this is when the panels are actually worthwhile to kind of bring in a lot of that background reporting where government officials are f- super frustrated by a story and are going to 
are going to do something, right? There was an executive order that was signed. Something on a federal level was going to happen as quickly as possible. But here we have journalists to say, hey, it's good that it was done, but it doesn't mean XYZ thing is going to get fixed. In this case, that private companies have to suddenly disclose or collaborate with the federal government. Yeah, I just I'm I'm fascinated by this conversation. This issue was hardly mentioned at all in I, any of the three shows that I covered. I mean, it was barely barely mentioned. So, but I do find this very fascinating as a conversation. And we were talking about it last week on Polylog as well, like how this could be a harbinger of of bigger things to come. I do want to note there was a really really good interview that John Dickerson participated in in the Slate Political Gab Fest this week, speaking with a cybersecurity expert on these topics. And this whole thing kind of brings to mind one of the like major conclusions of this, which is that the this attack kind of got out of hand, right. that the company that kind of helped it happen, the ransomware kind of company, did not really expect things to be shut down. They kind of got in over their heads. And now they're potentially going to be, you know, destroyed in, in a huge way or targeted by the federal government of the United States for attacking this critical infrastructure. And this could very well be a watershed moment in how the U.S. deals with these infrastructure issues. Well, it's interesting you say that because there was another, the last clip I wanted to share on this issue was something that was discussed when John Dickerson talked to Adam Schiff, who has been, you know, on the Intelligence Committee and and really following this story closely. Democratic representative from California. That is true. And Congressman Adam Schiff had to explain, like, this gap between private industry and government and how it leads to really serious issues. There is sometimes called a blind spot between the intelligence agencies you work with and the corporations. how do we close that blind spot? How do they communicate in a way, one's public, one's private? Well, we need to increase that collaboration. We've tried in the past, uh, not very successfully. We need to make sure that the private industry feels comfortable sharing information with the government and, uh, and vice versa while protecting people's privacy. But we also need to hold them accountable. Uh, private industry needs to report to the government and they need to report to their own customers when they've been the subject of cyber attack or hack because it's individual privacy and data that's often being compromised. So there needs to be greater collaboration and a lot greater disclosure. So I just, (laughs) we kind of chatted for quite a bit between Cecilia Vega's comment and Adam Schiff's, but it just seemed worlds away from each other. Cecilia Vega was just like, government can't do anything. These are private companies. Like, a lot of people are super frustrated and Adam Schiff is just like, look, like collaboration is really important and we need to work together and it hasn't been successful, but we can do it. Uh You know, and it just really was clear to me that like, wow, if I had only heard one show, I would have assumed like the consensus was one way or like the, the media framing on this or the talking points on this were one way. And it was actually really helpful to hear from different voices. And I'm like, oh, here's government trying to say, like, we have our acts together, we're on it. And then you have journalists be like, nah, bro, like, they're real frustrated and they don't know what they're doing. So super, super interesting. Absolutely. And I don't have the quote for this, but one of the conversation pieces on Meet the Press about this issue was actually a really good framing in the panel by Chuck Todd, where he said, I'm going to list to you 
all of the ransomware attacks that happened in like the last few days that were not even related to this oil pipeline ransomware attack and how serious it is. And it just underscores what a massive, massive issue this has become. Totally. Brendan, close us out for today. What is our last something in journalism? So it's kind of funny this is going last because for me, this was kind of like my number one thing I wanted to talk about, but that's fine. It's just how the show, how the cookie crumbles, as they say. And this is a discussion about the CDC. I wanted to talk about some excellent and critical questions to the CDC director, Rochelle Wislinski. She was on all three of the shows that I covered today. She's on one of the shows I covered, so four. Four of the five. Yeah. And she was talking about this dramatic decision that was made on Thursday that people who are vaccinated, the CDC said, don't need to wear a mask indoors or outdoors, no restrictions anywhere, anyway, anyhow, unless you are in a few key places where everyone should be masked at this time during the pandemic, those being public transportation, on a plane, at a healthcare facility or in a prison. But other than those situations, oh, in homeless shelters, other than those situations, those who are vaccinated do not need to wear a mask, but they do need to follow local and state guidance. That's a little caveat. So in lots of places in America, you still do need to wear a mask. That's the confusing part here. But there were further confusing parts because Rochelle Walensky and the CDC were saying something very, very different as recently as Tuesday in a congressional hearing. And there's lots of states and lots of companies that are very confused, and there's still lots of people who are not vaccinated yet. So critical, critical questions and interviews on all three of these shows. I wanted to take a look at how each of them covered it. Just a few quick highlights. Take a listen to the questioning from Chris Wallace, who I really appreciated the way he began to frame this at the beginning of his question. While uh, the new guidance, and I suspect you've never had as much trouble delivering good news as you have this week, while the, 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 the new guidance is clearly good news, it, it certainly has created some confusion and even concern. I want to put up some numbers. The, the seven-day average of new cases is still almost 34,000 a day. Deaths per day are still more than 600. And almost two-thirds of Americans are still not fully vaccinated. If people who aren't fully vaccinated start taking off their masks along with the people who are fully vaccinated, aren't we going to see a spike in new cases? Uh, and, And aren't you, in a sense, relying on an unrealistic honor system? We are still vaccinating somewhere between 1.5 and 2 million people a day. And so every day more and more people are getting vaccinated. The honor system is to be honest with yourself. If you are vaccinated, we are saying you are safe, you can take off your mask, and you are not at risk of severe disease or hospitalization from COVID-19. If you are not vaccinated, you are not safe. Please go get vaccinated or continue to wear your mask. So I did appreciate that opening where Chris Wallace says, I suspect you've never had as much trouble delivering good news as you have this week. But an important reminder of the pandemic still happening. It still exists right now. And now I did not like Chris Wallace's double question here. I hate double questions that are very different questions. His first question I felt was the strongest. 
which he kind of answered the second one, uh, his first one being, aren't we going to see a spike in new cases? I would love her to answer that. Like, are you projecting now uh, an increase? Should we expect to see an increase in cases? She doesn't address that at all. The only thing I was going to add, and maybe you're going to mention this, or maybe you didn't hear it on your show, but on this week, Martha Raddatz noted the fact that when Dr. Walensky was in, supposedly, according to reports, was testifying on Tuesday, she had already approved the new guidelines that were announced on Thursday, which is kind of an interesting like background context, but it contradicted the whole like, we're following the science as soon as we can kind of messaging. Yeah, they didn't really get into exactly when she approved it, but there certainly were several instances of these hosts saying, hey, you said one thing on Tuesday, and then on Thursday, you said something very different. What what's going on here? Well, that's good. I think it's important to kind of bring that timeline into play. Yeah, absolutely. So on State of the Union, which was hosted by Dana Bash, I don't think I said that yet today because there wasn't a lot that stood out and we haven't been talking a lot about State of the Union. But Dana Bash had, I thought, a question that was framed from the perspective of an actual citizen. And I really, really appreciate that asking, like, what do you do as an individual with this guidance? Bash just excelled at this style of questioning. Take a listen to these two questions from Dana Bash. And uh, also, what do you think of these answers? So let's just get practical here. Is it safe for that unvaccinated child, even in a mask, to be in a grocery store when people around them could be unmasked and not following the honor system because they're not vaccinated? Thank you for that question. We were going to be at this period of time. We knew that there was going to be a time where we had the majority of Americans who wanted to be vaccinated, vaccinated, and yet the children were not going to be eligible um, yet. And we are working really hard. Let's celebrate the fact that this week we also got news that we can vaccinate our 12 to 15 year olds. We hope by the fall, by the, um, by the end of this year, we'll have vaccine eligible, uh, kids eligible at even younger ranges. And what we're saying is those kids should continue to wear a mask in those settings. We recognize the challenge of parents who can't leave their kids at home should be masked in those settings and to the best of their ability to keep a distance. Those, the recommendations for those settings have not changed. And do you trust that people who are not vaccinated, given what we've seen over the past year plus, will actually keep their masks on? You know, I think that people who were not inclined to wear a mask were not inclined to wear a mask before Thursday. But some of them were mandated to do so, and those mandates are lifting in part because of your new guidelines. Yes, and what we're really asking in those settings is to say, in terms of the honor system, people have to be honest with themselves. You're protected if you're vaccinated. You're not if you're not vaccinated. Those are stellar, super practical, super clear questions here. Yeah. Well done. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that Dana Bash gets to the heart of it. Like people are no longer bound in lots of these states now by the law, which said you have to wear a mask if you're not vac- anyone. You have to wear a mask in these settings. So I really appreciated Dana Bash's clarity there. Walensky's answer, this answer that she keeps leaning on, like people need to be honest with themselves. Is there really any evidence that that is effective or is going to be effective? Why should we expect that's going to be the case? Don't pay attention too much. Don't spend too much time thinking about this kind of like questionable answer because there's an even worse one coming up next. If you were a pregnant woman, would you keep your mask on? 
Um, we're encouraging pregnant women to get vaccinated. We do have increasing data now that pregnant women should get vaccinated. Um, that's going to really be an individual by individual decision. Um, and so, uh, you know, it, uh, it really just depends on how much risk you're willing to tolerate, how hard it is for that for you to for you to wear that mask, how much disease is in your community. This answer makes me absolutely furious. The question was, what would you do if you were pregnant and vaccinated right now? Would you take your mask off or not? And then she's like, well, you need to just assess for yourself what you're going to do. No, you're the expert. If the expert can't give a clear answer, how do you expect someone who is not an expert to find the answer? You're not giving anything useful here. It's a complete abdication of responsibility to answer the question and provide guidance, which is what your job is. And to be clear, she could have done both, right? She could have said, if I was pregnant and vaccinated, I personally feel fine not having a mask in my community because the, you know, I live in blank city and the vaccination rates are blank percent and it's growing. If you live somewhere else, you may want to talk to your provider. You may, if you work in certain conditions that make you nervous, you may, like she could have done both, right? Answer the question in a simple way and also give kind of like the provider answer. Yeah. Absolutely. Very good point. Uh, And finally, I wanted to end with Meet the Press, which I thought had probably the most critical questions from a policy perspective to CDC Director Walensky. And so we really need to understand the individual risk as we're making community level decisions. I understand that. But I want to show you, as you've seen, I mean, all of the papers and look, people are both happy and confused. Um, You've got here the mayor of Kansas City. I don't know if that's the type of rule that was written in coordination with anyone who has been a governor or a mayor over the last 14 months. Dr. Wen, CDC has gone from overcaution to throwing caution to the wind. Uh, folks in, uh, in, in San Antonio, the government messages are confusing. And that's the thing. I, I, again, I go back to the local officials are the ones that have had to enforce these mask mandates. And now you're saying, hey, still enforce a mask mandate. But now they're going to sit there and have people say, well, the CDC says I don't have to wear the mask anymore. So you basically how did you not just pull the rug out from underneath the mayor of Kansas City and everybody else in the country that's trying to manage this? Everybody, as we are working towards opening up again, towards the after 16 months getting out of this pandemic, will need to understand what they need to do locally. And this was not permission to shed masks for everybody everywhere. This was really science-driven, individual assessment of your risk. And CDC is hard at work now saying, what does this mean for schools, for travel, for camps, for businesses? But we needed this foundation, this building block, in order to revise all of that guidance, thousands of pages of guidance, um, so that we could take this information, this science-based information, as we open, as we take Mm. these next steps. I guess, why do you make the announcement about, I understand that you've, the the science about, about masks with vaccinated people, but you just said, Okay, we're going to get new guidance for schools, new guidance for businesses, new guidance for travel. Why not have those things ready to go before you make the initial announcement? 
you know, it was very clear that places were starting to have do um, to make their own assessments, and we wanted to make sure that they understood that it was safe at the individual level. It was going to be nearly impossible for us to revise all thousands of pages of our guidance simultaneously and release it all one at a time. We needed this building block, um, this first step, so that we could say this is the science upon which all future guidance will be based upon. So I thought Chuck Todd did it an excellent job of getting to the core question of why did you do this now and why did you kind of blindside all of these states and localities with this information and do so without providing any more guidance on what they should be doing and it sounds like her answer is we and she says this elsewhere in almost these exact words We told you that we would let you know as soon as possible what the science is, and we told people what the science was on Thursday. And she mentions like two recent studies that came out over the last two weeks that solidified that science. And she's like, we didn't want to hold that up. And yes, there will be revised guidance coming out, but we just did not want to wait. Yeah, I I hear where she's coming from. I just, I'm surprised there wasn't more... Maybe there was some on your shows, Brendan, not so much on mine. More scrutiny in the how this messaging, like less questioning of the message itself and more questioning of how this message was rolled out. But I think that's what this was, though. I know. That's what I'm saying. I don't I didn't see it that much on my show. Oh, I see. I see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And I guess my we definitely should be asking, like, why is the CDC so hyper focused on just individual messaging when during a pandemic, it's about public health and not just individual health, right? And it sounds like all they were thinking about was individual health with this announcement. And yet, public health rules are changing. I think they changed in like 20 states over the last few days because of this individual health message. So if the CDC was completely blind to the fact that that was likely going to happen, then they probably need to hire some new people to ensure that that part of their job is actually being thought of and considered before they make massive decisions like this. And the final thing I'll say to wrap this whole segment up is that I really, really liked seeing these critical questions put towards our pandemic health experts, policy leaders. And I really, really would have liked to seen it for all the other times that those leaders were on the Sunday show. I know. And that's kind of what I was, it took me a bit to try to figure out how to just talk about my last criticism, but I'm like, the how makes us better able to understand what people are going to believe or not believe. And if we were having these conversations more often in the last 14 months, I feel like the last six to eight months would have been less painful. Yeah, there should have been critical questions to these leaders, you know, weeks ago for the last few weeks saying, why are you requiring people to stay masked in this situation or that situation when they're vaccinated? You know, the masks have been, you know, they get in the way of so much communication, so much engagement, so much of human life and social life that is causing things like depression and suicides and other awful things. So why are you being so overcautious? Which is actually a lot of the like tough, tough questioning that Walensky got from representatives of Congress on Tuesday, right? Why was it so much harder for them at a congressional hearing than it was in the news, right? Why were they getting tougher questions from representatives and not 
the media. But it was good to see this level of questioning today, at least. Absolutely. Well, that takes us to our dialogue challenge. We talked about so much. So what are, what's the challenge this week? I would just maybe say whether it's the Israeli-Palestinian crisis or another super complicated story that you've been hearing, like challenge yourself to find a new angle, a new story, a, a new version, a new perspective that might inform your understanding of it. Excellent, excellent point, Naomi. I, I feel like the shows need to like dust off their capabilities and like explaining new ideas yeah totally because they haven't had to do that for a while because it's just been a continuing pandemic story but it's like no you guys need to like remember that your job is also to help people understand new topics or topics that are newly in the headlines and not just assume everyone can follow along the latest developments one thousand million percent but there are other places that do do that so seek them out if you have any thoughts or any new angles you want to share with us, you can always email us at podcast at polylog.com. You can send me a note on Twitter at Sotonaomi underscore. You can send a note to polylog at polylogcast or to myself at bstitle on Twitter. Thanks, everyone. And we will talk to you next week. Talk with you then. Bye. Bye.